0: Hi, I'm Rob Wolf, Director of Communications at the Center for Court Innovation, and I'm in Washington, D.C. at Community Justice 2012. Today, I'm speaking with Mark Halsey. He's a professor of criminal justice at the Flinders Law School in Adelaide, Australia, and he was also one of the joint leaders of the team that evaluated the Melbourne Neighborhood Justice Center. Mark, first off, let me just thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Pleasure. Thanks, Rob. What I wanted to do is ask you a little bit about the evaluation. So I thought maybe Maybe you could just start off by describing what the three most important findings were and maybe you want to give just a little bit of background about sure. Sure. the evaluation when yeah. it was conducted
1: and yeah, yeah, how yeah. it was conducted. Okay so the evaluation virtually started when the center first opened and it first took clients in around February 2007 and the evaluation we collected data for just over two and a half years and handed up a final report at the end of and. Nine and the, the the court was set up to serve a population of around eighty thousand people uh, in inner city Melbourne in a in a locality called the City of Yarra. Quite a mix of people who rate under the come under the banner of the lowest socioeconomic index. Indeed, in the in the country, one report found uh, with some very wealthy pockets of, of the population as well of the catchment area. In terms of your question around what were the three most significant findings. The first one is that, I mean, in terms of just out and out kind of findings, in terms of was this thing a success? One of the things that we were charged with measuring was the degree of community participation. That has to be a big focus of a community justice centre, a neighbourhood justice centre. And we found kind of high levels of community participation and satisfaction, and The and it was evidenced by people reporting that not only had the NJC given them the opportunity to be heard about justice and local community issues in their area, but they also saw around 50% of everybody serving reported that their decisions had been reflected in things that the Community Justice Centre or the Neighbourhood Justice Centre had done. I mean, another big finding is, I mean, over time, everybody asks about the recidivism question. Now, the court didn't just hear criminal matters. It it sat as a children's court. It sat as a, a VCAT or the Victorian Civil Administrative Tribunal, heard, you know, like residential tenancy matters and so forth. It heard a wide range of matters. The majority of matters were criminal matters. However, we looked at a sample of, of NJC uh, clients, and they were followed up for about I think it was about sixteen to eighteen months against a control group from another from other courts with similar backgrounds, kind of offence histories, times in and out of court, and so forth. And it, what it showed is that the survival time of NJC clients was was slightly better than the control group. When it came down to it, something like a seven to ten percent lower. Uh, recidivism rate. I think one of the other clear results was the compliance rate on community-based orders and doing community service. That proved to be a better compliance rate than the state average.
0: Let me ask you about something that you brought up in your presentation that I thought we could discuss briefly and that was what happens in the courtroom Mm -hmm. in terms of who speaks Mm -hmm. and you made a point that you found that beyond the attorneys, the prosecutor and defense, other people, including the defendant, were much more likely to have an opportunity to speak and be heard in the courtroom than in a conventional setting. And I wonder if you could just say a little more about that.
1: Sure. We did look at, and we ran a a series of court observations at the neighborhood justice center court and two comparator sites as well, two kind of regular traditional magistrates courts. And we were very interested in to what extent were people in the court engaged in the process of the matter or the case? What was interesting was that defendants themselves were not only far more likely to be called on to speak, to be asked to speak by the magistrate, but they themselves would would, would ask to speak in an unprompted way to the magistrate, far more often than in other courts, which, which to us, I guess, indicated a, a degree of trust or a, uh, you know a, a sense that what they wanted to say would be taken seriously and that that they felt they could actually put their own views on the agenda if you like. One of the other important things about the NJC court, as opposed to other courts, is the presence of other support people there. So, if you're dealing with a clinician or a counsellor or whatever, with mental health, alcohol and drugs, financial counsellor, if they needed to be in court to either support or um, clarify things immediately for the magistrate, they were far more likely to be there and understand something about that person's situation, their history, where they need to go, etc., and where they're at in their kind of recovery process, if I can look at it, put it like. Like that and to inform the magistrate of that which made for a much more holistic hearing if you like
0: There was one other thing you mentioned, that it was uh, absolutely fundamental, I think those were the words you used, to to think about the way the magistrate is chosen, or in our case usually the judge in the United States. I I thought maybe you could just explain a little bit more about that, but it also raises for me the question, does it become personality-driven, and if the personality of the judge is so crucial, does that make it harder to, say, replicate in
1: different settings? does look it does make it slightly more challenging because look people are unique but I think I mean they did you know exceptionally well in in um, appointing the magistrate that they did and I think one of the the best things that they could do is, is to is to try and really kind of map well, what are the the great strengths of that particular magistrate why does he work in that scenario and so that when they go to fill that position again, that at least some of those features can be present. And I think, you know, it's been said here at the conference as well that, you know, you need someone that is willing to move away, if you like, from the kind of the moral condemnation script that, that kind of inhabits a lot of court kind of operations and that is willing to canvas some other kind of way of operating like the therapeutic justice, uh, like, you know, procedural justice to actually kind of, in a sense, be willing to work with in individuals and work to understand the things that underpin their offending, if indeed they're before you as a criminal defendant. No one's irreplaceable. It's just a matter of going about the business of selecting someone very carefully and not thinking you can just slot someone in and they'll be overwhelmed by the climate and they'll just automatically change. There has to be some kind of kind of integration process there. So let me ask you one more question, Mark. Mm. What would you say are the three most critical factors to a community court's success? Okay, so the things that we named, I think, ultimately in the final report, were a single magistrate. So the magistrate gets to know, basically everybody that comes before them and that can set up some kind of tangible relationship with them and, and the, the you know the monthly or, or however often the court reviews for, for specific people, really important. The second thing is that it is really important to have a neighbourhood justice officer or a person that can act as the go-between or liaise between the magistrate and the people who are trying to help clients in a more direct sense you know the clinical team and the other members of the the larger support team like financial counseling homelessness whatever there needs to be that person so that you can maintain the independence of the magistrate in court and that they're not seen to be interfering in those other clinicians roles. Would that parallel the role of the resource coordinator that we have in the community courts? I actually don't know the answer to that it may well but if it is someone that basically is in court the Majority of time, and knows what the magistrate is doing, and knows what other aspects of the centre are doing for particular clients who are in the court. Then that would be right. So yeah, that sounds that sounds right. pretty parallel. So that's the the second thing. The other thing is that it has to be well from our point of view the there is huge weight to be attached to the on site nature of services, so that clients don't get shunted or lost between an order from a court and trying to either find a service some distance away or hope that they turn up to that or hope that they go to their community corrections officer somewhere else. Well great thanks so much Mark. It's a pleasure, Rob. I'm really happy to be here. I've been speaking with
0: Mark Halsey, who is a professor of criminal justice at the Flinders Law School in Adelaide, Australia. We've been talking about what he learned as one of the joint leaders of the
1: team that evaluated the Melbourne Neighborhood Justice Centre. Thanks, Rob. Can I just also um, acknowledge the uh, other members of the team? And that's Professor David Bamford from Flinders University, Dr. Stuart Ross from University of Melbourne. And we also had assistance from... um, Firms such as PricewaterhouseCoopers, who did a cost-benefit analysis for us, and the Social Research Centre of North Melbourne, and um, the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence, based in Collingwood in Melbourne. I'm Rob Wolf, Director of Communications at the Centre for Court
0: Innovation. If you want to hear more of our podcasts, you can visit our website at www.courtinnovation.org.